Bible reading, but with a passage like that, we certainly need to pray. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord our God, we do thank you that you address those ordinary areas of human life in your word, and we pray that you would bring us with our lives open before you this day, for Christ's sake and for our benefit. Amen. Well, what are we to make of this passage? And why am I talking about it in chapel? Mainly because sex matters to God, it matters to God's people, and it should matter to those training for ministry and mission. We saw last week that Proverbs 1 to 9 is meant to shape us in three ways before we get to the individual Proverbs. We're meant to build on the right foundation, the fear of the Lord. We're to keep on choosing wisdom, not folly. And we're to have our characters shaped by wisdom. Now the focus up to the end of chapter 4 has been on the upside of wisdom. But now it turns to the downside of folly with a focus on her clear representative, the woman who entices a young man to commit adultery. This image of the loose woman, or adulterer, serves two functions in Proverbs. Within the book, I think she's firstly an image of folly personified, dressed poetically as a person. And as she serves her, as such, she serves as a warning to all of us, whether we're married or single, because folly rears its head in all areas of life. In chapters 1 to 9, there are other images of folly as well. We saw the folly of uh, choosing the wrong kind of companions last week in chapter 1, also there in chapter 2. If we were to look on to chapter 6, we see being in debt, being lazy, being a troublemaker, a whole host of things in chapter 6 as well. Now, I'm not going to focus on that aspect of uh, this woman today, but it does account for how prominent are the warnings against the immoral woman in Proverbs chapter 9. It's there in chapter 2, all of chapters 5 to 7 and half of chapter 6. And maybe this woman is chosen simply because adultery is the clearest example of folly. But this woman functions on a different level as well as a warning about wrong expressions of our sexuality. An actual woman or group of women who tempt us to act foolishly in this area of our lives. And that's where we'll be focusing today. Just as an aside, it's certainly not asserting that sexual sin is primarily the fault of females. For in Proverbs, both wisdom and folly are personified as women. Now, I'm sure that sexual temptation would have been a live issue for the original hearers. These were young men training for the future. And given the sex-focused nature of our contemporary world, this is important for us to hear too. We may not often hear it in church, but whether we're young or old, female or male, single or married. We might have to do a bit of translation from this text addressed to young men. But whatever our age, gender or marital status, 
how we express our sexuality is an important part of who we are. We might need to translate the smooth-talking adulteress into the men on a prowl for a one-night stand. We might need to put it in the context of going out on a date or what we watch on the internet. But we all need to hear this message. These are live issues for all of us. And so, although Proverbs was written with a particular audience in mind, young men, the principles apply to male and female alike. Well, who is this woman? We see that set out in verses 1 to 6. Chapter begins with a call to listen, followed by the reason to pay attention so that we can grow in our character and relationships. It starts not with a big stick, but with a carrot. This is what we should be aiming for, striving for. And that's unpacked in verses 3 to 6, as this woman is described. Did you notice in verse 3, the focus is not so much on her actions, which we might have expected, but on how she uses words as weapons to entice those who are unformed. As elsewhere in chapters 5 to 7, her weapons are not so much her beauty, that's only ever mentioned in chapter 6, or even her sexually seductive wiles, but her language. She is smooth talking and speaks enticingly, seductively. The image of her lips dripping honey refers not to untidy eating habits, but it's a sensual depiction of something that initially seems sweet and satisfying. But actually, her words are described there as bitter and sharp. Not just in their aftertaste, but in their very essence. They're like gall, a bitter, even potentially deadly plant. A two-edged sword is effective uh, here, um, as an image of death, as it is elsewhere in the book of Proverbs. <coughs> and so in verses 5 to 6, such a woman leads you down on a pathway not to life, but to death. And this idea is repeated again and again in the picturing of the immoral woman in chapters 1 to 9. She gives no real consideration to leading a life worth living, we see in verse 6. She wanders aimlessly in life, is not even aware that she's doing so. Well, who are we to avoid and why? Well, before he gives us the advice and warning, which he does in verses 8 to 11, he urges the young men again to take notice of his teaching. They are listen, to listen to his words, not the smooth speech of the immoral woman. They're to distance themselves from such a woman, to uh, keep away from the door to her house, a place where we see elsewhere she propositions her customers. The downside of not keeping your distance is set out in verses 9 to 11. The loss of honour could refer to the loss of face, but I think more likely here the word refers to possessions or wealth. As you see in the marginal note, the word dignity is literally the word years. So the reference here in verse 9 is to the loss of wealth and possessions and years, spending time and possessions on a developing a relationship with someone who is not your spouse. 
That makes sense of uh, the following verses as well, where verse 10 talks about your wealth or in the NIV strength and your toil. They should not benefit strangers, but those in relationship with you. And verse 11 outlines the final consequences of developing such a relationship. And it's not that you're suddenly fulfilled, but that your life is used up. It's useless. The image of groaning at the end of your life is a picture of regret, of a wasted life. So verses 9 to 11 outline that a relationship with such an immoral woman results in all your wealth and time and energy and hard work being used up in a way that brings no benefit to you or your family. And so verses 12 to 14 outline this lesson. Verses 12 and 13 really echo each other the young man has resisted the rebukes and the correcting words of his teacher and their attempts to shape him. And so the devastating conclusion reached by the young man who's gone down that path is, I was in utter ruin, as the ESV translates it, or serious trouble. Well, that's who we're to avoid. But there's positive teaching here as well. Who are we to embrace? And we see that in verses 15 to 20. This is a crucial passage for us because its high view of human sexuality is reminiscent of a book like Song of Songs, also in the Bible and also neglected by preachers. The water metaphor is an image of the husband's sexual energies and affections. It's a metaphor for sexual pleasure as it is in chapter 9 verse 17. It expresses an evocative sexual delight in making love to your spouse and it's in the Bible Christians who see the awful effect of sexual sin in the world and it is awful can often give the impression that sex is too dangerous to be delightful however if we're going to take this passage seriously we need to proclaim a positive view of sexuality and sexual expression within the right context an exclusive heterosexual marriage relationship and this needs to be done with the same clarity and conviction that Proverbs has for anything less is to shortchange God's people male and female if God has seen fit to include teaching about sexuality in scripture we must make room for such teaching in the church because it seems to me that the best defence against committing adultery is seeing sex as a good gift from God in the right context. The lesson here is to delight in expressing your sexuality only in its God-given context of marriage. Look at the images, your own cistern, your own well, your springs, all water images. And there's both restriction only within marriage but also encouragement to view sexual activity as one of God's best ideas. Verse 17 sets out the idea of exclusivity, but with a twist suggesting you lose rather than gain by going outside the marital boundaries. It's not that you're missing out, but you're gaining what you're intended to have within marriage. In this context, Variety is not the spice of life 
to quote a proverb. And more is not better. Verse 18 is simply the language of praise and delight in your spouse, your fountain. And the church needs to rediscover and promote a positive view of marriage sexuality as an antidote to a sex-obsessed but not satisfied world. The second half of verse 18 makes explicit the teaching of the whole section, that a man should delight in his own wife. The verb here means to be, to take pleasure in, to enjoy your spouse. And the context of verse 18, the very physical context of verse 18, suggests that it's especially delighting in the physical and sexual relationship with your wife. As in the Song of Songs, the language of praise, a loving doe, a graceful deer is found. Verse 19 speaks not simply of a rational decision to be faithful to your spouse, though let me commend that as a good thing, but rather a physical and emotional intoxication. You don't often get urged to be intoxicated in church, but here you are, (laughs) being intoxicated with her love. And we see that uh, the alternative is to be intoxicated with the wrong woman, not the right woman. Well, who do we answer to? In all this, who do we answer to? Well, much of verses 3 to 20 has argued that adultery is foolish because its consequences make it a poor option. But the teacher's warning climaxes with a reminder of the deeper consideration of being, a deeper, of being accountable to the God who will judge us in verses 21 to 23. Verse 21 teaches us that God both sees and evaluates all human actions. Even secret sin is not hidden from God who assesses or examines our every deed. Verse 22 factors on the more common teaching of Proverbs that an individual's actions often have natural consequences as well. Sin, often with the tantalising promise of freedom, leads rather to be held captive or tangled up by our wrongdoing. What Paul talks about in Galatians, doesn't he? Galatians 5. Christ has set us free, but use our freedom not as a reason to indulge the sinful nature, but to serve one another in love. And this final verse here brings us back to character. The evildoers made the wrong ongoing choice. Folly rather than wisdom, and for lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. This passage tells us that we need to think Christianly about our sexuality. If we look around us, our society is preoccupied with sex. We live in a society that's saturated with it, and what's even worse, saturated with the wrong understanding of what sex is about. And I think we've got to face the fact as Christian communicators that unless we talk about sex from a Christian point of view, the church will slowly but surely adopt the values of the world. 
as I've looked back over my ministry, I've seen the lives of many Christians being ruined by sin in this area of sexuality. Young couples who've slept together before marriage and fall pregnant and then have to tell the church the damage it causes to the ministries that they're involved in. Perhaps training young people, very hard for them to hear seriously part of the Christian message when in the womb of uh, one of their youth leaders is growing the fruit of sin. Perhaps I shouldn't put it uh, quite like that, but uh, um, I don't think that the, the child is sinful, um, but here is a consequence of uh, the wrong action they've taken. I see married people who fall into this trap. Remember reading of uh, one couple who were in an adulterous relationship, and they thought that well, they ought to bring it before God as to whether they ought to continue in their relationship. So they prayed about, it. and they said, "Lord, if this uh, this relationship is not from you, please take away our feelings for each other from us." And of course, He didn't. So they thought, "Well, God must be sanctioning this relationship we're in." So easy for us to fool ourselves. You see many marriages breaking up over things such as internet pornography. It affects even clergy and missionaries. I'm going to a power and trust seminar and was told of uh, a pastor's conference and uh, one of the pastors was chatting to the uh, conference centre, uh, the residential conference. Um, and thought, just uh, talk about uh, Christian things, uh, let's raise the issues of the gospel. Said, Did you notice anything that was distinctive about us as a, uh, a group of people who came to stay here? And the person behind the reception desk said something like this. Well, yes, we did notice something different. Um, the uh, use of or access to explicitly sexual videos increased and was about 40% during this clergy conference. How bad is that? There are false teachers within the church who are speaking out on sexual matters and undermining the beliefs of God's people. Some are sanctioning living together instead of getting married. That premarital sex is normal, that homosexual relationships are acceptable, pastors and bishops are having affairs, ripping apart their congregations the accessing of child pornography, clergy entering into active homosexual relationships. We don't need a royal commission to find out how damaging that is for the church. <coughs> but on the other hand, we need to be clear that sex is meant to be pleasurable. It is not Satan who made sex in order to push us towards sin but God who made it pleasurable to pull us towards stronger relationships in marriage. God made sex as a good gift to be enjoyed in the right context. So one part of the female anatomy serves no other function than to give a woman a sensation of pleasure during sexual activity. God made sex to be enjoyed, not to be endured. And given that so much damage can be done by wrongfully using sexuality, what can we do? 
Let me just mention a couple of things that you might like to think through. Being accountable to a trusted friend can be very helpful. Ask yourself, what kind of things do I watch or read or think about? What proactive steps do I take if I'm married to strengthen my marriage? And whether I'm married or not, how do I express my need for intimacy? Sex is too important for us to get it wrong. And that's what we must talk about it and preach about it. You may think it's an odd passage that uh, we ought to have with all our mission reps here today. But let me encourage you as mission reps to prepare your future missionaries in this area of sexuality as well. Don't think that that won't be a real temptation for them in another culture. And it can devastate the mission and ministry that they're called to there. We need to have a change of our thinking so that sex is no longer a taboo subject in the church. We need to put it back on the Christian agenda. Some years ago I did a series of talks on Soul of Souls and I was contacted after that by a couple of clergy who said, oh I don't want to talk about sex in my own congregation, um, would you come and do a series of, on Soul of Souls to me? You can get embarrassed about talking about sex, not me. And it just struck me, is this an area that we actually don't talk about in our local churches? Perhaps it's an area we need to uh, put back on the agenda. It's too important simply to leave in the world. And I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now he's speaking in clearly hyperbolic language, but he's raising the same issue that we see in Proverbs 5 about how important it is to get our sexuality right. Now today I haven't uh, specifically addressed those of us who are single, voluntary or otherwise, those of us who are separated or divorced. Let me commend to you some of the writings of Wes Hill on these issues. But here too, our sexuality is only to be expressed in God's sanctioned ways. But it's clear too that we have a need for relationships, for intimacy and for spiritual friendships. And perhaps that can be an ongoing discussion as we explore things together. But it is clear from chapter 5 itself that we're alerted to the dangers and consequences of uh, expressing our sexuality in ways other than God intended. The teaching here is, I think, both positive and negative. Negatively, we are to reject the seductive enticements of a person we're not married to. Any alternative to that. But positively, we are to delight in the God-given an enjoyable gift of sexual expression within marriage. Rather than this being something we're embarrassed about in church, my hope is that we will start to proclaim a positive and wholesome and winsome view of sexuality 
to a world that desperately needs to make sense of something so desperately messed up in our world. So let us be shaped, not by God's, by the world, but by God's wisdom, as we see it here in the book of Proverbs. Let's pray. Lord God, there are probably many things going on in the minds of different ones of us. As we know in this area that none of us has a blemish-free life. We do pray that you would deal with our past. And we do pray that you would help us to commit to a future in which we honour you with our sexuality. Please strengthen our relationships, our friendships, our intimacy. Please strengthen our marriages for those who are married. Please help us to honour you with our bodies. Please help us to serve you with our lives for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.